I think sometimes we can forget that simple truth that the greatest joy of heaven is Christ. It's not loved ones who pass before us. It's certainly not the streets of gold. It's our Savior himself. He is the greatest treasure. Um, the gospel is only ultimately about God. It's not about us. And heaven is that place in which God has brought all of earth. All of those condemned, all of those redeemed, all angelic beings to a place of correct relationship with him. Right? Hell's forces will be brought to their knees. Believers will be in sweet union with the Lord. And all tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we do so with joy, with the satisfaction of knowing he's ours. If you're with us uh, in our series through Exodus, we'll begin with uh, looking at Exodus chapter 1 leading into chapter 2. If you recall, Pharaoh has realized that Israel is a concern for him. Uh, they are a growing population. Uh, they are a foreign population within their own people group. And he sets his sights on crippling them as a growing and um, divided group, bringing them to their knees is his goal so that he can maintain control while also maintaining the benefit of their presence in his nation. So when you look at this text and, and you look at the first few chapters of Exodus, you're not seeing the miraculous work of God. You're seeing the providential work of God. You're seeing events like Babies being born, Pharaoh trying to uh, cripple the nation by killing the baby boys. He initially starts by trying to enslave the nation to keep them from uh, prospering under his leadership. And ultimately, uh, the destruction of the baby boys through the use of the midwives doesn't work. So he turns and asks the Egyptian people to help him subdue those babies by killing all of these uh, helpless children and you'll see, once again, God, through providence, keeping Israel prosperous, keeping the nation strong as a nation, in fact, getting more and more prosperous through this. So, so as we consider the text, let me tease out, like, I, I think a concern I have for this text for our church family, and that is we recognize God's providence and find rest in it. Now, I... Like, as you consider this text, I want you to imagine that you are one of the people of Israel. You don't know that rescue is coming, but it's 80 years away. Right? Like when we do the chronology here, it's 80 years at its closest possible expectation. Maybe longer. We don't know how long Pharaoh was enslaving and then trying to kill babies before Moses is born. But from the birth of Moses to the rescue out of Egypt, we have... 80 years. So we know that Israel's suffering under slavery and oppression ex executed on them through violence. That is, they're, they are not merely just, you know, having to work more hours at the, you know, local gas station and not getting paid for it. They are in hard labor. They are being oppressed through violence. And then Pharaoh tries to get these ladies, these midwives, 
to slaughter all of the male children as they're, as they're being born. I mean, the, the picture in this text is that as the child is being delivered, as soon as they see and recognize that it's a boy, they're supposed to take its life. I would presume while the mother is still in labor pains and unaware that her baby is being executed in the birth room with her. That, that, would, be the, that would be what was supposed to be happening through these midwives. They refused to obey Pharaoh. And that leads us into chapter 2 with the birth of Moses. So I'm going I'm to lead you up and then read into chapter 2 with you. So I want you to begin in verse 8 with me of chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. We just pause for a moment. Multiplication is probably happening through, at least by analogy, couples dating, marrying, and making babies. This is God's providence. What caused them to be so fertile, to find such healthy marriages and healthy homes where despite enslavement and violence against them, their homes are building a population base that is strong and mighty, causing the Egyptians to fear. It's the providence of God. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly, that is the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly, that's with violence, made them work as slaves. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, and again, reading between the lines here, clearly my plan is not working. So I need to, I need to turn up the pressure because I need to do something to cripple this nation that's a growing powerhouse in my own room. So he says to the midwives, one of whom is named Shifra, the other Pua. When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. That comes back and bites him. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with them. And again, I think this is providentially, because how he dealt well with them is this. They got families and children. It wasn't that they miraculously lived to 3,000 years old. It's that they just were able to find joy in life and home. So God dealt well. That, that's the word tov, or good with them. The people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them their families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son, so this is not the Egyptians, God, uh, Pharaoh commanded all the Egyptian people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And that really, verse 22 really then starts out chapter 2, doesn't it? It's almost as though the divide should have been at that verse before, because Pharaoh with the midwives, it's not working, so it's not like phase 3. 
Phase one, oppression. Doesn't work. Phase two, midwives killing the baby boys. Doesn't work. Phase three, Egyptian people killing the baby boys. So, so again, on this phase three, probably you're seeing something like this, that there would be regular cleansings where the Egyptian soldiers would go through and they would find any male child and kill him. So begins the narrative of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh, his daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, so probably somewhere three to five years old, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, you look in the storyline of this text, and hopefully my reading was able to, to draw that picture for you. So, so let's just lay it out. This Levite marries a Levite, and they have a son. This son is under that threat of death. And so for three months, they're able to hide this little infant boy in their home. And then at three months, probably because of just both the volume of crying and maybe because at some point, he is going to make himself known when those, um, in all likelihood, when those Egyptian soldiers come by and kind of um, do the search for any babies that have escaped their notice. And so they say, we, we need to get this baby into safety. And Pharaoh's commanded all the babies to be thrown where? So we're going to throw him in the Nile. We're going to build a little basket for him. We're going to put him in that basket, and then we're going to put him in the Nile. And so that's what they do. And when they do that, then the person who discovers this baby boy is none other than Pharaoh's daughter, probably one of the most powerful women in the nation. And she rescues this baby boy. And then because she needs this baby boy to survive infancy, she has to find a nursemaid, someone who can nurse this baby. And so... Lo and behold, there's this little Hebrew girl there, and she says, hey, go find someone to nurse this baby. And so the little girl, who happens to be Moses' older sister, probably Miriam, goes and gets Moses' mother. And so Moses' mother gets to raise Moses under the protection of Pharaoh's daughter for the next handful of years, and then has to give her baby away, probably at the ages of three, four, five, somewhere in there, back to Pharaoh's daughter, where Moses is raised into adulthood. Okay, so that's the narrative. Like, that's the storyline. So let me, let me remind you again that I think this text tells us some significant theological points that all Israel, and I would say all of God's people, should be latching onto. So let me suggest again that God's providence 
should cause God's people to be at rest. That doesn't mean be inactive, but to look at life with significant hope, with confidence that God is at work, with, with an expectation that despite horrific things, troubling things, trials, and challenges, we can trust that God is moving and is good. John Piper defines providence something like this, God's purposeful sovereignty. Um, maybe we could say it, God's sovereignty in directing so that all things happen according to his good purposes. And I would add with providence, generally we're not talking about his miraculous work. You know, we're not talking about the parting of the Red Sea. We're talking about how God often moves with purpose in the regular events of life. The fact that you got here safely this morning is God's providence. And by his providence, you will get home safely. I, I had a trip yesterday, and I think my wife said twice, like, I'm really glad you got home safely. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm home safe too, but like, what do, what do I not know? Like, why do you keep saying this? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I guess she does drive with me, so maybe she does move. No. Something. But again, let me just suggest to you that God's providence is so apparent in this text and it brings comfort to Israel in latter years when God is not working through miracles. God is not parting the Red Sea. He's not dropping manna from heaven. That God who protected them in Egypt is still their God at work in their lives. God's providence should cause the believer to rest in, God, in the expectation that God is moving and good and has purpose in their life. So let me just see if we can, we can walk through this text in a way that helps us to see that theology and kind of put ourselves in the sandals of Israel who's reading this, having experienced it, but is now looking back and seeing God's hand. So God provides a rescuer in Moses. It's pretty apparent that, that God is doing this. But when you look in verse 1 and 2, you'll see that God's provision of Moses is pretty, pretty significant. First, you have this man. He's not named here. Uh, later, he'll be named. Um, he's a Levite, and his wife is also a Levite. So he's pure Levite. That's the tribe. Going back to Jacob's children, this is one of his sons. You'll know that the Levites were also then called to be priests. That is, those who are prescribed by God to be able to enter the Holy of Holies, to be able to enter into God's presence for God's people. So you say, why is that significant? Because this is going to be Moses and Aaron's duty. God is already preparing for them someone who can commune with him in his presence and, and has been given that family right to be the spiritual shepherds of Israel. In fact, God spreads the Levites throughout the whole land of Israel so that all throughout the country, his message is being taught by these Levites who are to be the spiritual shepherds. Where this first spiritual shepherd is Moses. Where he is going to commune with God, he is going to deliver to God's people the Ten Commandments through Moses. He's a Levite. They conceived and bore a son. This is, I think, the 16th time this phrase is used since Genesis 1. It's used to describe God's promised son. 
So if you were to go back, you see this especially with like Jacob and his wives. When God produces these children through these instruments, through Jacob and his wives, it's that she conceived and bore a son. Or you go back to Sarah. She conceived and bore a son. And Isaac is named. Right? She conceived and bore a son. So you come to this text. It's, it's, I think the last time it's used in the Pentateuch is this idea that God has brought about a special child of promise. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. I love this next line, when she saw that he was a fine child. I always get myself in trouble talking about babies. Um, I, I've never seen a mother who's like, you know what? He's ugly. <laughs> I was like, if you visit the hospital or you visit home in the next week, that new mother is proud as can be. She thinks this child is the most beautiful child ever because it's hers. I'm still waiting for that moment when, like, yeah, he's your new baby. We're hoping that this gets better. <laughs> no one says that. Some of us are thinking that. Babies, I, I don't find brand new babies particularly cute. They're amazing. They're wrinkly. Their skin is thin. Their, their heads are often misshaped. Moses is not telling us this baby's pretty. Moses is telling us something more. In fact, it is somewhat ironic that Moses is talking about himself. What Moses is telling us is that Jacobed finds him special in some sense. In fact, the first time you see these types of words in all of Scripture is in Genesis 1, when God saw and then declares it is good. Those are the same words in Hebrew. So she, echoing the creator who looks at his creation and doesn't say, oh, look, it's pretty, but, but notices its quality is good. That is, it is morally excellent. It is praiseworthy. It is good. She looks at this child, and in some sense, the Holy Spirit must be moving her to acknowledge that this baby is good. She sees, and it is good. You'll see that God actually defines himself in this way later in Exodus 33 when Moses says, show me your glory. And he says, I will show you my goodness. Same word. Moses is telling us that, that his birth was not merely an accidental birth. It's not as though Moses gets to some place in his life and like God's like looking for a piece to fit his puzzle. And he goes, you'll work. God is crafting this puzzle piece. And as this baby is born, having never done anything except be birthed, his mom says, he is good. Now just to lean into that a little bit, Hebrews 11 says the same thing. In verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. Now just pull that apart a little bit. The way the author of Hebrews does this seems to indicate Moses had faith as a baby. That's not his point. It's a misdirection a little bit by the author of Hebrews for purposes that we don't need to get into with that chapter. But it says, by faith, when he was born, he was hidden. So whose faith is that? It's parental faith. This is, this is particularly in this text, 
Moses is identifying his mother as seeing that this baby is good. Or as the author of Hebrews says it, they see he's beautiful and then by faith hid him. That there is actually a godly response going on here. This is not merely that nurturing instinct of a mother to think her child's beautiful, despite the fact it's a wrinkly-skinned, misshaped human. This is, this is faith-filled evaluation and response. Acts says it this way. In Acts 7, as Stephen is preaching right before he gets killed by the Jews, it says at this time when Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. So Stephen gives us insight into this text, saying that he wasn't merely described as good or beautiful um, in his mother's eyes, but that she is actually understanding by faith that this child is something more than just a child. That God is doing something here, and having seen that God's hand is at work, she's moved by faith to preserve this child's life. Having uh, seen many of my children born, I can tell you the natural instinct of a mother and father is to protect the innocent and the helpless child that's been given to them. That is not the ethic that Scripture describes here. It is the ethic of a believer who's convinced of something greater. God is moving, and rather than being passive, she participates and rescues this baby through her courageous acts. So this baby is born into a home of Levites that he might become the person who brokers with God, meeting him face to face, uh, the law and the covenant that will provide for Israel the basis for their relationship with God in the future. It's an incredible calling that required his Levitical birth. He's also clearly from God's moving in Jochebed's heart, protected as someone that God has set aside and is beautiful or good. God is already providing a rescuer. This is 80 years before the rescue. This is a long time away. In fact, we'll look at this as we, as we move forward in the text. So God provides this rescuer. He doesn't just provide the rescuer. He protects the rescuer. Come with me to verse 3. I'm going to read this a little bit differently. I'm going to read the Hebrew word and translate it the same way it's translated in the rest of the Bible. When she took, excuse me, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him an ark made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the ark among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. When you look at this text, I think there's multiple different elements going on. But did you catch the word ark? That's that word that's translated basket. And I think it's a, a somewhat unfortunate translation because you miss it. This is, you go back to Hebrews and you see Noah's building an ark to protect people from judgment coming. 
And here you see the same concept that this is a sacred rescue happening in the middle of judgment waters. And so this child who has no hope of living as he's cast in the Nile River is protected through an ark like Noah had been. God's special servant protected in the middle of judgment in an ark. Not only does God protect in an ark, he protects through the powerless, the socially outcast or the weak. Who saves this child? Notice it's the mother who's mentioned. And and who is the rescuer on the shore that boldly speaks up? It's a young girl. You know who didn't get killed in Pharaoh's genocide? Girls. The girl who gave birth to this precious baby, made an ark for him out of reeds, and sends another girl, not killed, to go watch over and protect him so that another girl, Pharaoh's daughter, can rescue him and be his mother. Pharaoh is stymied by the social outcasts of Hebrew women. It is interesting that, again, Pharaoh's never named And his whole plan of killing Hebrew boys is being undone by these weak women of the Hebrews. And I mean weak as in they're socially nobodies. They were so unimportant he didn't even see them as a threat. And yet his whole plan is undone by these women. I think God is probably preaching to us that his providence doesn't need heroes. His providence doesn't need you to be a glorious human, but merely a faith-filled one. He can use the least likely, the most unexpected things to bring about his results according to his plan because he is sovereign and he reigns. This is what providence means. It means that there is nothing in your life, there is no event in your life, there is no person in your life through which God cannot work to bring about his purposes. So God uses things like car accidents and cancers God uses things like heart attacks and births. God uses dating and marriage. God uses these things. And often we look at these events and we we see the happenstance of them and we ignore that God is moving in these events to do his purposes for his glory. Go back to the story. She builds out of reeds an ark. She puts it in the Nile River. Theoretically, then, she's obeyed. She's cast her baby onto the waters. And then she sets her young daughter. So Aaron is three years older than Moses, so we assume Miriam is somewhere in that kind of too young to be put into slave and work situations, but young young enough to be not expected that, but old enough to be a watcher. Old enough to, like, you know, you're not going to send a five-year-old to watch that thing because they won't watch it. They'll be playing in the mud. And, and you can't send an 18-year-old to watch because they'll be expected to work. And, and so that we, we understand Miriam is probably somewhere in that like young enough and old enough kind of category. I want you to imagine that you put this basket into the Nile River, and it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. Is this an accident? 
Are we meant to think it's an accident? No, absolutely not. We're to recognize that God's hand has a divine appointment here ready for this baby boy to be rescued by another woman. We're to be thinking along these lines because God is preaching to Israel that even though they put this basket into the middle of, well, I shouldn't say the middle of the river, the edge of the river where the reeds grow so the basket doesn't float away probably. Far enough out that from shore no one's noticing it, but in all likelihood, this daughter of Pharaoh who's, who's bathing is closer out into the water and is able to hear the baby crying because when she opens the lid, the baby's crying. And apparently Moses, again, through the ministry of the Spirit, is so compelling a baby that this girl, who is Pharaoh's daughter, rather than following the will of her dad, rescues a baby boy. I mean, this edict to kill baby boys is broad and big, and she's like, no. Pharaoh's own household is not compliant. This is God's providence once again. Not only that, but the, the social boldness of a young girl to go up to the princess of Egypt and say, hey, like, what causes this girl's heart to be like, oh, this seems random. Yeah, why don't you go get someone to help me with this baby? And doesn't see a plot behind this or, or is somehow leaning into the complicity of this girl who's watching a basket. Like, how is this not known? And the fact is, God is doing this. God is moving the hearts. God is causing this to happen. Let me just, like, directly speak to you singles right here. I am always, like I get it, I'm not single, I'm happily married. So it's easy for me to look and be like, yeah, you should just chill. But sometimes, like, you know, this 21-year-old single girl feels like she's an old maid and no guy's ever going to come and find her attractive and going to date her. And it's like, who do you think our God is? If he can schedule a meeting with a basket, a crying baby, and a princess in the middle of the Nile River... He can get this thing done. And if he can cause a crying baby to be a pleasant sight to a princess, he can make him like you too. <laughs> I'm not looking over here. I, uh, I am amazed at my own faithlessness at times to trust in God's providence to do his work. We do not need to manufacture moments. We do not need to be stressed or anxious. Instead, we need to rest. We need to act with courage and faith that God moves. Again, they built an ark. They set their daughter to watch. They're not doing nothing and God honors his purposes. He's acting with grace and goodness to protect this precious baby because he is the destined deliverer of God's people. I don't know what has your heart filled with anxiety, but when you look at your past, you see how God has protected you. When he's brought about goodness, when he's granted you the gifts he's given to you, doesn't your heart find comfort 
I mean, honestly, as complex as your body is, it's a miracle you're alive. It's astounding you haven't died from something you ate. Driving in Bakersfield, again, it's miraculous you're here safely. Why do you distrust? Do you forget that God's providential hand is moving, protecting, and shaping all of world history for his purpose? Have you forgotten that there is not one hair of your head that he is not aware of and numbered? Or that the God who has made all things has named every star? And not because he's bored, but because he cares. And he watches over you and moves all of history to his plan. That includes you, the people around you, your circumstances, the things, and the people in your life. Our God is not unaware, and he's not uncaring. He not only protects, he also prepares his rescuer. Again, I I, I don't think it's meant to be laid out as accidental that it is Pharaoh's daughter, one who is capable of moving the situation so that this baby is protected. Look again in verse 9. Pharaoh's daughter said to this girl, take this child away and nurse him for me. Or excuse me, the mother. Take him away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So this child gets to go into a Hebrew home, his home, with his brother and older sister, and these God-fearing Israelites for his formative years of infancy to toddlerhood. Again, they probably nursed much longer than we would in our culture. So we're probably talking about a three- to five-year-old. But Moses clearly identifies as a Hebrew later in life. He, he views himself as one of them, not an Egyptian. Even so, when you look at this text, the woman took the child and nursed him. If we were to go back, you'd see that the, the princess offers wages. So now she's paid to care for her own baby. And she's given protection. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him. This Hebrew rescued out of the river gets a name before Pharaoh does. God is honoring his servant, and he's making a point. This is my agent. This is my deliverer. This is the one who I've appointed and directed by my providence to lead the people. In fact, again, going back to Acts, when Stephen... His preaching says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Moses was instructed. So here Pharaoh doesn't know this, but in his own household, um, let me break apart that sentence a little bit better. Moses is raising up in his own household the future deliverer from his own probably son, the next Pharaoh. He's training him and investing into his training and education, the very one who's going to use that training and education to defeat his kingdom later. He's incubating the leader, the general of the army of God that is going to break and impoverish Egypt in 80 years. This is God doing this. Right, like the Pharaoh of Egypt is pouring resources into his adopted grandson who is later going to take and move Israel out of his son's hands. This is God's doing. 
This is God's doing to move Moses from being brought up in hiding in the shelter of just his Hebrew home to being trained and equipped in the palaces of Egypt. It is God's doing to equip him with a political wisdom to lead so that he's mighty in words. Isn't that an interesting thought? What did Moses say when he meets God at the burning bush? I can't talk. Here's what the Bible says. He's mighty in words. God's preparing a deliverer. He's equipping him. He's training him. He's protecting him. He's preparing him. God's providence is at work. God is preaching to Israel. Let me just highlight a couple notes from this text before we wrap things up. The Lord looking with favor indicates not only that the Lord had already designated Moses as his future deliverer of Israel, but I think it also gives that pivot so that we see that his parents are godly and want to think about the world from God's perspective. So can I just encourage you that you start looking at the world with eyes of faith? I mean, can you imagine if God hadn't providentially cultivated godliness in the parents of Moses, that they might have just been complicit in the murder of their baby? They might not have been aware that God had set his favor on him. I think it is also interesting in terms of Moses that favor precedes behavior. Grace is the prelude to any goodness in you. Right, like Moses is seen as beautiful in God's eyes. God prepares him. God equips him. Then Moses responds in obedience to God. It is not that he was righteous, then God has favor. Favor precedes the righteousness of Moses. So too in our lives, we love God because he first loved us. This is such a clear New Testament principle. But if I can just plead with you parents, those of you who are raising children, don't turn them into Pharisees who do everything. Plead with them to seek the favor of God by seeking his grace and mercy and salvation. The last thing we need is a self-righteous church that doesn't have God's favor nor his grace. God uses weak people. I think often... If I'm being honest, many of us picture ourselves as the hero of the moment. I mean, hardly does one watch a heroic movie or uh, something like Top Gun and want to be the guy, like, refueling the jet. I mean, where are you watching Top Gun going like, man, I want to be, I want to be that guy. You all wanted to be Tom Cruise. You all wanted to be flying the jet. You all wanted to be the hero of your stories. And in this, in this account, God is showing us that his providential wisdom uses a little girl to rescue his deliverer from danger. God doesn't need heroes. He needs people of faith and courage. He needed a, a need. Please forgive the use of need there. God uses those who are faith-filled and obedient. If you're wondering 
what you can do to prepare yourself to find Mr. Right, and you're worried that you're already washed up at the ripe old age of 21. Walk in faith and obedience and trust in the hand of God. If you have situations in your life for which you are asking God to rescue you, walk in faith and obedience. God does not need you to be the victor. He does not want you to get the glory. He wants to get the glory. He tells Paul this. He said, we despaired even of death itself so that we might not rely on ourselves, 2 Corinthians 1.9, but on him who raises the dead. God wants to teach you to trust him. He is the rescuer from out of the Nile River. He is the rescuer who sends the princess. He is the one who trains through the hands of the Egyptians, his servant. He is the one who gave conception and birth to Moses. God is the hero of this story. Not Moses, not Miriam, not Jochebed, and certainly not Pharaoh or his daughter. God saves through judgment as well. I think the Holy Spirit inspires the use of the word ark so that we might look at this text and see that once once again, God is protecting in the middle of adversity and judgment. There's no mistake that that word is used that we might see that just like Noah, who was named, he will give you rest. That God is once again going to give rest to his people through another Noah-like figure who is rescued from judgment through an ark and will bring the people out from bondage and backbreaking labor into the land flowing with milk and honey that they might have rest as well. There's also a timelessness, excuse me, timeliness of God's provision and protection. So this happens about 80 years before. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. Look down in chapter 3, verse 7, this is now from out of the burning bush. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. 80 years before Moses is born. He's preparing well in advance of this moment. I mean, it's only a few verses later. But this birth, this provision of a redeemer, was awaiting the time in which he would send him back to Egypt 80 years later. Now, we know that our God works like this, but there are times in which there has been an answer already prepared And God is waiting for the affliction of our soul to lead us to prayer so that he can answer the right time. I do not know what God is doing in your life, but I know he calls you to rest in his providence. So let me just kind of bring this to to, to kind of a couple unified thoughts. 
The Lord's Prayer starts out with this. Our Father, King James here, our Father who art in heaven. It's not like God needs us to identify his address. The reason we say who is in heaven is because we're identifying him as the king, the sovereign over this world. Or as Ephesians 3 says it, that we pray to the Father from whom all heaven and earth is named. We are declaring that our God is king. He's sovereign. He owns and rules over all of it. I would suggest to you at least two implications. That, that when we pray, we are oftentimes asking for God's providential rescue. Now, he would use instruments who believe and obey people, his people, to rescue us. But we're also asking the God of circumstance that he would care for us, that he protect us from bozos who drive through red lights, that he would protect us from sicknesses that could cripple us, that he would open the hearts of others to hear the gospel proclamation. We are asking for God to move in this world because he's king, which means he has the right and he does rule. Right? Like we're not praying to a God who has the right but is powerless or in, in like unmoving. We're praying to the one who has the right to govern. And anyone who does not obey him is disobedient and immoral. And you are too when you disobey him. Right? That's why it's called sin. So we pray to the one who is king because he has the right to be king. He made us. We are not our own. We are his. We are his craftsmanship. We are created for his glory. But not only that, he has the right to it. He exercises rulership over it. God is not sitting up in heaven wishing he could fix it. God is not up in heaven like we are when we watch a movie, helpless to change the outcome, merely observers of what has already been planned. God is actively engaged in your life because he has the right to rule over all things, you included, and he's actually doing it. And we forget it. Israel had no idea. Generally speaking, this is happening. Now, maybe they knew at some point there's some Hebrew who's a, adopted into Pharaoh's household. But Israel's probably over a million people. It's not as though when Moses was born, there was a star over his stable. It's not as though that there were some trumpets and angels announcing it to shepherds. Moses is born. And an obedient, faith-filled mother says, he's precious. He needs to be rescued. And God is quietly moving behind the scenes to prepare, to guard, and equip this man to be a deliverer for Israel 80 years before their prayers reach his ears. And he says, now's the day. This is our king. Your heart should rest in him. I don't know the anxieties that fill your soul, but that's the God we pray to. And so we pray, our Father, who is in heaven. He is ruling, and he is moving, and he is shaping, and he is convicting, and he is calling sinners to his name. He is granting us sorrows and trials that we might lean on him. He is rescuing us from them that we might see his hand at work. 
He is giving us children and families. He is bringing people into this church because he is moving and he deserves glory and worship and praise because of it. Is your heart resting in him? The king who is moving in providence to accomplish his purposes. And even as we look back historically, he is a flawless, flawless architect as he moves to bring about his good purposes in Israel. And he's doing the same in your life. You can be confident. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We ask that you might bring our hearts comfort and rest. Father, I do ask for those who might be living as rebels to your kingship, that you would call them to turn that they might receive grace, that they would submit their hearts to you, trust in your good plan, and they might seek forgiveness through the grace that comes to us because of Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection that he might grant us righteousness. Lord, for those of us that know Christ as Savior who want to be loyal to you, would you please strengthen our hearts to rest in your care over us, your right to move this world, including sinners who sin, including events that cause hurt. Would you strengthen our hearts to be at rest in your care over us? Lord, drive away sinful anxiety and worry. Teach us to pray to the one who dwells in heaven enthroned as king. Teach our hearts to praise you as you move in this world and rescue your people. As you shape them to look like Christ. As you grant us children. As you call men and women to follow Christ. Lord, help us to always thank you. Guard us from presumption of thinking we have been the rescuer. When you are the great deliverer of your people. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing your character to us this morning as the God whom we can trust, who moves through providence for good purpose. I ask that you would sanctify our hearts to rest in that, that you are king and you are good, and so your providence is trustworthy. Lord, help your people to be holy. Help your people to be pleasing to you. That Christ might be honored. Amen.